Shazam. I flipped the switch the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, what a joy to be together. It's so good to see you guys. It's so good to see you guys right here, right now, because you are the people who successfully reset your clocks and actually got up at a normal time. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. I didn't do it. My phone did it for me. And I'm, I'm with you on that. But you also, when your alarm went off this morning, didn't say, you know what, I can just go to the 1045. <laughs> no one will notice. So thank you for that. Uh, we're continuing our series today in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew 5, that's where we're going to be today, Matthew 5. If you're in this space, you don't have a Bible with you, there are house Bibles around the room. We'd encourage you to grab one of those so you can physically look at the Word uh, but before we jump into it, I'm supposed to remind you guys of a couple of things. So we are getting really close to Easter Sunday. You're supposed to cheer right then. There we go. Resurrection Sunday, right? Like we're getting really close to it. We have a couple things going on I want to remind you guys of uh, that we're, we can participate in together to prepare our hearts for that. I'm sure many of you are doing something in terms of engaging Lent, whether that's using the devotional we gave out or wh whatever it looks like to kind of prepare your hearts for that season. But there are a couple things we can do communally as a church to prepare our own hearts, but also to invite our community uh, into celebrating and worshiping with us. I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but Easter is one of the seasons where people are most likely uh, to consider their involvement in spirituality and faith. Uh, and so it's one of those times where it's like, hey, if you have a friend, coworker, neighbor, family member who you've been ministering to, praying over, like Easter time is a really good time to consider inviting them uh, to come experience worship with you. Um, so to that end, uh, we have some invite cards in the welcome table. We'd love for you to grab a handful of those. And I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna send some information out about this this week, but I wanna really challenge our whole church body, my family's gonna be doing this, uh, to take some time between now and Easter and do just some intentional prayer and movement in your community. And I say prayer and movement uh, because what I mean by that is like, if you've ever done like a prayer walk, right? This is not a biblical concept, but it is a spiritual practice that is pretty common in our day in our kind of faith tradition where you literally just take an intentional walk around houses in, in, a, in a community where people live and you're praying over each home as you pass it by, praying God's blessing, praying for the spirit to move, praying for God to give you opportunities to have non-awkward gospel conversations with people. I would love to encourage you as a church, us as a church, to participate in that ahead of our Easter Sunday. Take, take an afternoon, prayer walk your neighborhood, or even uh, prayer walk one of the neighborhoods right here close to our church building. Take a handful of invite cards with you. If you're like, I don't know if I can do that. Hey, listen, you can do a prayer bike ride. You can do a prayer drive. Like there's, there's nothing, nothing, I, I just wanna, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I just wanna get us into the community, praying over our community, praying for God to move. I wanna encourage you uh, to consider what it might look like for your family to do that, guys. Th this is a really, really practical next step to marry, uh, to marry together a passion to grow in spiritual disciplines, your prayer life, and to grow in missionality, right? Like uh, engaging your community. So I'd encourage you, consider that, grab a handful of those cards on your way out today. The second thing with this is we've talked about this a little bit, but we're doing something a little different this Good Friday uh, this year. So instead of doing a normal, uh, uh, normal Good Friday service, we're actually setting up 
some stations around our property. They'll probably be up for most of Easter week if, or, or uh, Holy Week if uh, weather permits when we get a little closer to it. We're going to be setting up stations kind of around the edge of our property, moving toward our sanctuary, that walk through the biblical narrative of Jesus' last night on earth and have prompts, some art pieces people in our church are making. We'll have prayer prompts and scripture reading for you to take 30, 40 minutes and walk around the property and stop at each one and pray and consider and prepare your heart. We're going to have that available to the community uh, for several days leading up to Easter. But on Good Friday night, Chris and I are going to set up shop here in the sanctuary uh, as kind of an open house time to, for whatever the time is in your, in your bulletin. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Where we're going to be going, just repeating through about 30, 35 minutes of singing, prayer, and scripture reading. And we'll invite you during that time to come up Walk through the prayer experience, experience it, pray, prepare your heart, then come in, kind of cap that off by sitting with us through some singing and uh, scripture reading and prayer. I think it'll be a really powerful experience. We're going to um, invite our community into this. This is a really great thing to invite someone to participate in. So that stuff is all coming up with Easter. You're going to get more information about this, but it's in the bulletin, things like that. I'd encourage you, grab some of the invite cards and help. Let's just Let's just think about, pray toward what God might do in our church, in our community, uh, heading into Easter season. So today, back to today, we're going to engage in a text today that most of us are going to hate. We, we, we cool for that? We, we down for that today? Today, we're going to be talking about Jesus's teaching around anger. And this is a fun one, mostly because it's not a fun one. Uh, have you ever noticed that it's, that it's basically impossible to tell a story of a time when you were like, you know you were sinfully angry, right? Without just feeling like a fool. It's very hard to like bring one of those stories up and share a time when you lost control and blew up in your anger and not just think of yourself as like a Tasmanian devil or like Yosemite Sam, just like a complete cartoon fool. I, maybe that's just me, right? But I think there is something about it that just, man, you feel silly, you feel embarrassed, you feel ashamed. One of my children, and who will remain unnamed because I do care about uh, paying for counseling fees when they're older, one of my children who will remain unnamed, when they were at a certain age, this made sense. They were playing in the yard, and, and, they, and they got quiet, and they were at the age where when your child gets quiet, you immediately get worried, right? So I go around the edge of the house, and I found my child uh, sitting around a pile of dog poop, uh, playing with it like Play-Doh, and then, as you do with Play-Doh, eating it. Uh, which is not, not great, right? Uh, this is not parenting award for me. But I go and I grab my child, and I'm like, oh, no, no, we don't do that. I pick him up, and their immediate response was abject, unadulterated rage. They were so upset that I had ruined their playtime in the yard, right? There was kicking, there was screaming, there was gnashing of teeth, there was attempts at biting, but I was much more motivated to not be bitten by my child in that moment than I normally am at any given time. Anyway, point is, take them inside, clean them up. They were upset with me, upset with me for 30 minutes leading out of this experience because I would not allow them to continue eating dog poop. I share that story because that's like... Thinking about that kind of anger, like that's about the level of ridiculous I feel every time I have to share a story of my own anger, <laughs> right? The reality is, I think most of us are pretty uncomfortable talking about anger, or at least our own anger. I think we don't like to talk about anger for a pretty simple reason. We're all angry <laughs> in various ways. 
And I think in a very real and simple sense, I don't think we want to deal with Jesus' really plain teaching on the subject. As we're going to see today in our text, sinful anger, guys, sinful anger is at prison. It holds us. And the only, the only solution the Bible offers is the reconciliation made possible by the cross of Jesus. Beloved, I want you to hear this. We're going to come back to this. And, and by the way, I want you to hear this, even if you're already sitting here going, I'm glad we're talking about this, but this is not for me. I'm not a terribly angry person. If that's you in the moment right now, uh, trust me, you still need to hear what Christ is saying to you in this. Beloved, you can give your anger to Christ because he cares about you. Beloved, he sees the injustice that happens to you. I want you to hear that. There is no injustice that happens in reality that your sweet Jesus does not see, that he does not care about. And hear this, beloved, the cross of Jesus is sufficient for every sin, for every injustice ever committed, period. In Christ, you do not have the need to balance your own scales of justice in life. You are freed to simply worry yourself with love and reconciliation. So, having said that, let's jump into this text. I think this is going to be good for us today. Matthew chapter 5, we're starting in verse 21. It says this, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Seems like a good rule. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary where you are on the way with him to court. Otherwise, your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, we ask today, as we take a few minutes to consider your word, Holy Spirit, we just, we just need you to be our discipler today. Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate this text to us, God. I pray that you would not, you would not allow us psychologically or spiritually to give ourselves a pass and convince ourselves that this text is teaching someone else how to deal with their problems. But Lord, I pray that you would do the work of cutting down to the depths of our soul, that you would convict us, that we would hear what you have for us, even those of us, Lord, even those of us who are sitting on years of callous, unrepentant unforgiveness. God, those of us who've allowed our anger to smolder into bitterness and unforgiveness, and even depression and self-hatred, God, I pray that you would just poke afresh at those things. Remind us, Lord, that there is no sin so stale that you cannot still free us. God, we love you. We trust you. We need you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. So what's going on here? On one level, 
in our text, we see Jesus use murder, relational conflict, and legal trouble all to talk about the realities of sinful anger in the life of the believer and the life of his kingdom. He has this line where he says, anger directed toward a brother or sister in Christ is morally equivalent to murder. That's a big sentence, <laughs> right? Anger that is sinfully directed toward a brother or sister in Christ, according to Jesus, pretty bluntly in this text, is morally equivalent to murder. Hold on to that idea. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to need to talk about that a little bit. He also says that this kind of other-focused anger, that, that, that it extends into broken relationships that can endanger proper worship, and lastly, he says this, this kind of anger-fueled, broken relationship that, that this can carry a sort of debt that leaves you imprisoned, stuck, and paying it off. So we're going we're gonna to work our way back through these three different little aspects of this teaching and see what we kind of get at, see what Jesus is pushing us here. Because I know this is a pretty sensitive subject, but I really believe, beloved, this is important for us. So in a very literal sense, Jesus is addressing this Old Testament law that says murder is sinful and evil, right? This is one of the big ones. This is part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 13 says, you ready for this one? Don't murder. There you go. That's Exodus 20, 13. That's, that, hey, listen, if you need like a memory verse on tap this week, Exodus 20, 13 is your go-to. Don't murder. Hey, you got it. Like that's pretty good. Um, Jesus is taking this really specific law and he's letting his followers know that God cares more about more than simply our actions, right? And by the way, this is the theme of Jesus' next few teachings. As we finish out chapter 5, we're going to see this over and over and over where Jesus does these, you have heard that it was said, where he brings up these Old Testament laws. And really, by the way, it's important to hear this. He's not bringing up these Old Testament laws. He's bringing up the religious leader of his day's current interpretation of those Old Testament laws. I know that's a weird, a weird nitpick, but that's actually, it doesn't really focus on our text today, but that's going to be a really important piece as we move forward in this. He's, he's taking the current understanding of these Old Testament laws, and he's saying, look, here's the deal. God sees your heart. You can follow the letter of the law, but God sees your heart. Your heart posture in law following is about more than the to the letterness of your actions, right? You may zone in on the specific behavior, the specific detail, but if your heart is in the wrong place, the law is still violated. In our text, Jesus says, if your heart has hatred, anger, disgust, toward a brother or sister in Christ, you may not physically murder them, right? You may not do the action, go kill someone, but your heart toward them is morally equivalent to that evil action. You may avoid the action of going and killing, but if your heart is in a place of hatred, anger, disgust, your heart is doing the same thing. That's... That's a pretty radical teaching. <laughs> and can we be honest for a second? I'm just going to say this. Most of us don't actually believe that's true, right? We just don't. And, and I mean, honestly, 
how many of you in this room, before you knew like we were talking about this text, how many of you in this room would actually say that you believe being angry at someone is morally equivalent to killing them, (laughs) right? Jesus is giving us some pretty clear words here that I think most of us at the end of the day just don't believe. Let's take this a step further. Is Jesus saying by this that that anger in and of itself is somehow morally wrong? Right? If Jesus is equating your anger toward others with killing them, that seems like he's probably saying just anger's out, right? And by the way, several scriptures seem to vibe with this radical idea. You can go and read Colossians 3.8. But now, for believers, put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Or how about Ephesians 4.31? Therefore, let all of your bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. James 1.20. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. The anger of man does not produce righteousness. All this kind of just seems, especially when you put it next to Jesus' words, like we're just not supposed to be people of anger, yeah? And it seems kind of like where it's pointing. There's only one problem with this idea. What then do you do with God's anger? If, If anger is in and of itself sinful, and it's not to exist among holy and righteous people, How can God be angry? Deuteronomy 9 says, Remember and don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have rebelled against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb, and he was angry enough to destroy you. Right? The God of the universe looked down at Israel in the wilderness, the Israel that he had just saved, that he had freed from slavery in Egypt, the Israel that he wrote the law for, and he goes, oh, you make me so mad. (laughs) I just want to get rid of you and start over. He literally says that to Moses. Hey, Moses, hey, listen, they're pretty terrible. I'm going to kill all of them, and then I'll use your kids to build a new nation. (laughs) What about the anger of Jesus? I mean, he flipped tables. He called religious leaders snakes. He had anger at his own disciples when they kept children away from him. He even had anger at the death of Lazarus. The famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. You know, his, his, his weeping, according to the text, came from his anger. He was overcome with anger, and he wept at the grave of Lazarus. Heck, even that Ephesians 4 verse we just read You know, verse 32 says, put away anger. But if you back up like five verses, it simply says, well, in your anger, do not sin. So obviously, there is space for anger not to be inherently sinful or God wouldn't do it, (laughs) right? This means anger has to be able to exist in a righteous way and a sinful way. And how the heck do you know the difference? I read a book in preparation for the sermon that just said this. If God does it, it's okay. If you do it, it's sin. Uh, (laughs) 
I'm just going to tell you guys, I disagree with that conclusion. <laughs> I don't think that's a helpful idea for us. And by the way, I don't think that's in line with the overall teaching of Scripture. A great example of this would be to consider the ministry of the northern prophets. If you go back and read after Israel, ancient Israel's civil war, when it was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you can read about this in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Read about the ministry of the prophets who ministered to the northern kingdom, the far more rebellious kingdom. This is guys like Jonah, guys like Elijah, guys like Elisha. One of the defining characteristics of their ministry to the kings of Israel was anger. (laughs) They were furious with these guys. And they would communicate, God's mad at you for your terrible leadership and the way you're leading his people into idolatry. I'm mad at you for your terrible leadership and the way you're leading God's people into idolatry. Anger was a key part of that ministry. Because this is actually a really important question. We need to know if, if there's such a thing as sinful anger and righteous anger, we need to know how to tell the difference. And the reason we need to know how to tell the difference is because, as I've already said, whether we like to admit this or not, we're all angry. It's worth repeating this idea because I think some of us, some of us, I think, have built some of our self-understanding and our personality around the idea of, I'm not really an angry person. I'm super chill. Stuff kind of goes off me like a duck, you know, water off a duck's back. I'm telling you guys, that's not true. <laughs> We're all angry. Each of us deal with anger regularly. Just according to a quick, like a quick Google search, uh, one in four patients who seek out therapy in North America, the 25%, a quarter of patients who walk into a counselor's office, therapist's office, psychologist's office, are doing so because of anger issues. One in four. Before you dismiss this as being a someone else issue, you need to remember this, beloved. Not all anger is loud and brash. See, some of us have anger that externalizes. It blows up into mean comments and outbursts of rage. Some of you guys have trauma around experiencing that from other people. Maybe parents who blew up in outbursts of anger and rage. And I'll be honest, guys, oftentimes if that's the kind of anger we experienced, we learn to express our anger in a much quieter and subtler way. Many of us have learned to internalize anger. Anger that exists as hatred in our hearts. That smolders against people or circumstances. Bitterness and brooding. Unforgiveness. And even this, self-hatred, depression, and sorrow are oftentimes an expression of anger directed back on yourself. Can we, can we just for the sake of like this moment, can we be humble enough to admit that anger is pretty much a universal experience, right? Chip Dodd is a Christian counselor and author. He wrote this book called The Voice of the Heart. He speaks directly to this issue. According to Dodd, anger, and by the way, all emotion, according to Dodd, is actually a morally neutral experience. See, we tend to think of certain emotions, think like happiness, as being positive, And certain emotions think like anger as being inherently negative. Dodd argues that the biblical teaching on emotion, and by the way, I would say I agree with this. I think this represents what the Bible teaches us. The biblical model considers emotions more like you might consider the check engine light on your car, right? The lights that pop up on your dashboard. These are in and of themselves morally neutral. 
They're a way for your heart to let you know certain things. This is your heart letting you know, this is an experience you're currently having. What you do with that emotion can turn it into sinfulness or righteousness. The emotion in and of itself is a neutral experience. Hey, this is happening. It's information. Your response to it can turn it into sinfulness or righteousness. Anger, Dodd argues, is simply the emotion that happens when your heart experiences, hear this church, injustice. It doesn't matter if that injustice is toward you or toward another. Anger is the natural response to a human being made in God's image becoming aware of the existence of an injustice, a moral wrong. So if this is the case, what is righteous anger? How can we have an experience of injustice that is, that is turned into a God-honoring heart, a God-honoring action? Theologian and also counselor, Paul David Tripp, in a commentary on Proverbs, digs deep into this idea of anger. And he gives us, I think, what's a really good diagnostic question. He says, what is the cause of your anger and what is the object of your anger? What caused the anger and what's the object of the anger? He goes on to say that, that all, all righteous anger is at the end of the day fueled by our fear of God. Our, our awe at the holiness of God and the way the holiness of God works itself into creation, specifically through the Imago Dei in other human beings, that there's something about the holiness, the grandness, the awesomeness of God that actually becomes the reason behind anger. And the object of righteous anger will be the injustice itself rather than the person. Let's sit with that for a second. If the fear of God is not the fuel behind your anger, according to Tripp, it is very likely not righteous anger. As an example, let's consider the anger of Jesus. You'll notice if you go and read through the Gospels and read about Jesus' story, you'll notice that anger was never arisen, like it never came up in him when he was being mistreated, right? When he was reviled, when he was treated poorly, when he was betrayed, when he was beaten, when he was misrepresented, when he was mistreated, he did not respond, according to the text, with anger or rage. He didn't even speak up to defend himself in the sham of a trial when people were bearing false witness against him and physically beating him in the midst of the trial. No, that didn't arouse the anger of Jesus. His anger was aroused by the curse. God being dishonored, others being hurt. Think about the stories we know of Jesus's anger the money changers in the temple, the space in the temple that was supposed to be open for any and all to come and connect with God through prayer was instead filled with people ripping people off and creating physical barriers where people can't come in there to pray and worship and also economic barriers where poorer people and people who were from other countries couldn't come and freely experience the love of God. That, that aroused the anger of Christ. Children being kept away from him who wanted to come and see him, that aroused the anger of Christ. Religious leaders who were putting undue, unnecessary, unscriptural burdens on people who were trying to connect with God, that aroused the anger of Christ. His best friend dying, the curse spitting out its power and its venom on someone made in the image of God, that aroused the anger of Christ. 
So if Jesus is the picture and the standard of what sort of what, what righteous anger looks like, man, consider the contrast, right? Jesus' anger is not aroused by his own injustice, but by the, the reality of injustice around him. I think this idea of the, the contrast of sinful anger is what Jesus is getting at in our text. Our sinful anger is like murdering someone and using our heart as the weapon. Our sinful anger disrupts both our worship and communal worship. Our sinful anger traps us in a debt that is impossible to pay. But wait a minute. If anger is just your injustice meter going off, right? If it's just the check engine light in your heart saying, hey, there's injustice, this is important. Why does it seem like Jesus is telling you to dismiss that? And especially if we're talking about like, well, if the difference is just Jesus allowed his anger to be poured out at injustice on others, but his anger wasn't aroused by injustice toward him. So you're saying that, that righteous anger means that when terrible things are done to you, you should just ignore it, suppress it, puss it away. That, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> doesn't God care about the injustices that you experience in life? Doesn't he care about the wrongs that get poured out on you? Beloved, of course he does. Of course he does. This is exactly the point. Remember, what was it that aroused the anger of Christ? Injustice, the effects of the curse on his creation. Beloved, that includes you. That includes you. That means when wrong is done to you, Christ cares about that. There is no injustice in this world that is beyond the vision of Christ. There's nothing that happens in secret. There is no wrong that's ever been done to you that your sweet Jesus is not aware of, that he does not care about, and hear this, that does not arouse his anger. It's a real truth. God hates sin. He hates the curse. When the curse pours out on his beloved, it arouses his anger. This is exactly the issue. See, when you bring your anger at injustice that you experience to Jesus, when you bring it to Christ, beloved, he feels this with you. He's with you in that suffering. His anger is aroused by sin affecting his beloved. And because of this, hear this church, because of this, you don't have to seek your own justice. You don't have to. You don't have to do the work of tipping the scales back yourself. Because that, that, that's at the heart of sinful anger. We experience something we should not experience. This should not have happened. That was evil. That was wrong. No one's got my back, so I've got to go tip the scales back myself. Through my words, through my action, through, let's be honest, my inaction and my joy when something bad happens to that person, right? We've got to do the work ourselves. But beloved, you don't need to. Jesus has already evened the scales with his work upon the cross. Period. Period. 
This part is so absolutely crucial. You don't need to seek out and work your own justice because Jesus has done this for you. Beloved, when Jesus returns to this earth, when he comes back, every single ounce of injustice and sin in all of reality for all time forever will be accounted for, period. There is not a single wrong that will slip past the eyes of our Jesus. They will either be paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross or it will be paid for by hellfire. God is just. He's just. And Jesus will judge the quick and the dead. (laughs) There is not a single ounce of sin that will escape his eyes ultimately. You need not seek your own justice in this world because Christ loves you. And he does this work on your behalf. When we direct our anger at others and seek our own justice, we are seeking to redo what Christ has already done. It's a way of directly usurping the work of Jesus. It's not your place to do that. It's not your job to do that. And beyond that, beloved, it's unnecessary. Jesus is a better judge than you are. (laughs) And he's deeply concerned with justice for you. He is more concerned with justifying your heart than you are. So then what is the solution for sinful anger? How do you learn to put it away? Like Paul says, that he says on repeat in his letters, right? How do we learn to put that kind of anger away? How do we learn to be the kind of people who actually submit our self-centered anger to Christ and allow him to be our judge? What does that look like? I think the the simplest answer to this is simply that you treat offenses against you the way Jesus treated your offense against him. You model what's been done to you. In Matthew 18, I'm not going to re-preach this text because we don't have time. It's one of my favorite parables Jesus gives. In Matthew 18, Jesus is asked about forgiveness by his followers. And he gives this parable. He talks about a, a rich master who's, who's going through and like clearing his debt book. He's clearing his ledger with everyone who owes him money. And he ends up forgiving the absolutely ludicrous debt of a servant who can't hope to pay it. So one of his employees owes him the equivalent of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, a, a ludicrous amount of money. And the master looks at the servant kind of in his, in his patheticness and he forgives the debt. He crosses it out. He takes it out of his ledger. And that servant immediately leaves and goes and finds someone who owes him like a good amount of money, like say, you know, maybe $10,000 in our day's cash. And he just begins throttling this guy, right? Like he just walked out of, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like, oh, oh, wow, look at this amazing gift I got. Then he goes and finds this guy and starts strangling him. Pay me what you owe me. And then has the guy thrown in debtor's prison. When the master hears about this, he comes back and goes, what the heck? <laughs> I gave this grace on you. You're not going to give it to your other, this other guy. And he throws him in debtor's prison, brings the debt back, throws him in debtor's prison until he can pay the last penny. It's pretty, it's not a happy ending (laughs) to a parable, right? The master brings the debt back, throws the servant in prison. According to Jesus, according to Jesus, reconciliation means you just have to die to the whole system of keeping a record of wrongs against you. 
So what I love about that parable is this picture of the ledger, right? You've got this master who's a good businessman. He's got his ledger. He knows who owes him what, and he's clearing out the ledger. And when he gets to this servant where it's hopeless in this servant's favor, he decides that his connection to that person is more important than his clearing of the ledger. So he simply removes it, right? In that moment, he's got to pick. Do I want my ledger cleared or do I want this person? I want this person. He has to set the ledger aside in order to keep connection with the person. The servant then leaves and goes and finds a servant who owes him and is met with the same dilemma. Here's my ledger. Here's the person. I can only have one. And he picks the ledger. He picks the record of wrong and says, you will pay me every stinking penny and you'll go to jail until you do. So the master's response to that servant is, you really want to live your life by the ledger? That's how we want to do this? Okay. And he experiences that, right? It's heavy. (laughs) But it's amazing. It's amazing that Jesus made this decision. That he looked at you in your sin. He looked at you in your rebellion. He looked at you in your injustice against him as a holy and righteous God. And he chose relationship with you. He absorbed the wrong. Christ giving himself on the cross doesn't mean that he just said, ah, sin doesn't matter. No, no, no. He absorbed the wrong. He paid the debt. When Jesus balanced the scales of justice on your behalf, he didn't just pretend justice didn't matter. He didn't just pretend that the sin didn't matter. He didn't just write it off. No, he absorbed the payment. He took the weight upon himself. He absorbed the wrong. That's that's how Christ balances the scales, right? By taking sin and injustice and death really seriously. Beloved, this means that you and I have to decide as we walk through the world around us, as we experience real pain, real hurt, real wrong, real injustice, because we all know we experience those things. You have to decide if you're going on to hold on to the ledger or if you're going to model after Jesus. You have to decide that. What's so great, though, is this. Jesus has already covered all the needed justice. Right? He already did it. It's not as if you holding onto your ledger is going to somehow make sure justice happens for you. No, no, no. Beloved, Christ already took that into account. You're already covered. Jesus already has your back. Because Jesus has already covered all the needed justice in all of reality, you, beloved, you are free to simply love. You're freed to love. It's not that justice justice doesn't matter. It matters deeply. It matters deeply enough for Christ to die on the cross. But Jesus has covered it on your behalf so that you can focus on connection. You can focus on love, on relationship, just like Jesus has done for you. So I'm going to land us with kind of three practical applications of this text, just really quick. What does it look like to do this work? How, How do you actually, when it happens, when someone wrongs you, when you experience a hurt, when you experience a wound, 
How do you actually engage it? How do you give it to Christ? How do you let go of the scales and allow him to do it? I'll give you three thoughts, and then we'll end at our time. The first one is this. Cover over an offense. Cover over an offense. You know, Scripture says it's beautiful to cover over an offense. If you can simply absorb a wrong, you should. If your spouse says something mean to you offhand and you know that's just because they're tired and grouchy and you can go, eh, it's not that big deal. And if you can do that, you should. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to cover over an offense. Your kid says something mean to you, a coworker, whatever. If some little petty injustice happens to you and you have enough clarity of heart and mind and spirit to put it in context and just set it aside and move on, that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. I'm gonna tell you, you don't need to nitpick your ledger. You don't need to. You don't have to. Jesus is already better at accounting than you are. He's already keeping track of those things. So if you can, you should. Now, now, you may not be able to, right? And this is, this is the key to this. Don't pretend you're more spiritual than you are. If, if you can't cover over an offense, if it actually is getting to you and you, if you find it sitting and stewing in your heart and your mind, you need to address it. That's how stuff rots and turns into bitterness and hatred and anger and broken relationship. So if you need to address it, address it. But if you don't need to address it, don't. Don't nitpick every little thing. If you can cover over an offense, cover it. Second idea is this. Live a life of repentance. Beloved, if you are murdering people with your heart, if you destroy them with your words, even if you just slay them with your bitter, quiet hatred... <laughs> if you lock them away in your brooding and your unforgiveness, if you delight at news that something bad has happened to them, <laughs> right? Your action is you need to repent. You need to bring this reality to light. This is of the utmost importance. It's of the utmost importance because it affects your worship. Look at what Jesus said. And if, you're, if you are standing at the altar with your sacrifice and realize there's unresolved, drop what you're doing. The reconciliation, the repentance and reconciliation, that's more important than finishing your offering. By the way, if you understand, or if you ever look up and study how temple worship works, that inconveniences everyone. That doesn't just affect this person's worship, that affects the 200 people because we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem, it affects the 200 people in line behind them that day. That's how the temple in Jerusalem worked. People lined up day after day to offer their sacrifices. You're talking about someone who gets to the front of the line and they set the sacrifice down, they're about to light it on fire and go, oh shoot, I'm so mad at that guy from work. You need to stop what you're doing and go deal with it. Guys, repentance is not something to delay. This is why I say, if you can cover an offense, cover it over. If you can't, deal with it. Deal with it quickly. That's why Paul says, hey, you know, it's a good idea. Just, just don't even let the sun go down on your anger. He's not being overly literal there, right? Like, sometimes it takes more than 24 hours to meet with someone. But what he's saying is, if you have, if you have something you need to work through that involves repentance and reconciliation, make that your top priority. That is more important for you than offering your sacrifice on the altar. Get it done quickly. 
Cover over an offense if you can. If you can't, deal with it. If you have sinful anger in your heart, beloved, repent. Do not ignore that. Don't let it sit and stew and rot. It will poison your heart. It will trap you. And reconcile. Seek to be restored to relationship. Guys, sometimes, sometimes a sin, sometimes a sin against you is such that the original relationship can't exist on this side of eternity. I need you to hear that. It's important. Sometimes the sin someone does is really grievous. It's abusive. It's terrible. And there needs to be a boundary of protection. And that's beautiful and good and okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Reconciliation, God's heart of reconciliation doesn't mean that you need to put yourself in dangerous situations or put people you love in dangerous situations. It's not what we're talking about. Sometimes reconciliation only happens in eternity. But as much as you are able, as much as you are able, seek to be restored to others. I feel like, not I feel like, guys, we, li- we live in a time that is actually, I think, in some really beautiful and helpful ways, pushing us toward this idea of, hey, you need, to, you need to have healthy and safe relational boundaries and emotional boundaries and where you exist and where you end and other people begin. You need to think through and work through that stuff, and that's awesome, and that's true, and that's real important work, right? But also sometimes, sometimes we just hate someone and don't want to deal with something, and so we go, you know, I just need boundaries with this person for my own safety in my own heart. And in reality, what you need to do is repent of your hatred and go and be reconciled to a brother or sister in Christ. Because it's hindering your worship and it's hindering the corporate worship. It's not by accident that Jesus ends his teaching with an image of someone going to debtor's prison. Guys, hatred, anger, that kind of sinful anger, it puts a debt in your heart. And you will not get out of it. And if, if you're living by the ledger, if you're living by keeping an account, balancing your own scales, keeping the, the, the scales tipped and balanced perfectly all the time, you will not get past that until every little nit is picked. If you give yourself over to that way of life, it will become a prison and you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Which, by the way, won't happen because people are sinful and they'll continue to sin against you. It won't stop. That's how it works. Beloved, so much better, so much better to trust the real judge who cares about your justice, who already balanced the scales on your behalf to bring it to him, to overlook when you can overlook, to repent when you need to repent, and to do the hard work of reconciling when and where you can. Don't hold on to anger. Don't let it stew. But if you have been, if that's you right now, beloved, you can change that today. I'm going to land us, Adam, if you want to come back up. Because you don't have to live your life owned by bitterness, owned by hatred, owned by anger. You don't have to be a murderer in your heart. You don't have to. Christ is a better judge. He's done the work. And guys, as I say this, I say this knowing full well that some of us have, have a broken, painful, hurt, hateful relationship that might be decades old, that might have years of callousness and years of momentum built around us not resolving it. Beloved, you don't have to live that way. Even today, you can walk in freedom. I promise you. Christ has that for you. You can repent. You can bring it to Christ. You can trust his accomplished work on your behalf.
why not, why not choose to be the kind of people who take the ledger and just go, eh, I'd rather not. I don't want to keep accounting down to the last penny. Why not trust Jesus to bring about true justice and allow yourself to just be focused on love? So I'm going to do this, guys. I'm going to invite you to take him in, and we're going to take communion in a moment. And I think this is a rare opportunity for us to very practically practice what Jesus is teaching. I want to invite you to do this. I'm going to take maybe just 90 seconds, two minutes. I would encourage you to take a minute and pray silently with yourself. If you need to find some space to get on your knees, that's beautiful and appropriate. If you need to grab one of the pastors in the room and have us pray with you, that's appropriate. We love you. We'd love to do that. I want to invite you to take just a couple minutes and genuinely consider your own heart of anger. Ask the Spirit to give you clarity on the way you relate to others the way you engage, maybe what what areas of bitterness that you are holding on to and have not let go of. Because guys, here's the deal. In just a minute, we're going to take communion, right? A really practical example of what Christ is talking about. One of our tangible acts of worship. And I'm going to encourage you. If Christ puts a name, a face in your heart that you know, you know, you are operating in a place of anger, bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness. I'm going to encourage you to consider whether or not you need to delay taking communion. That you might go to that person and repent. That you might create space for Christ to be trusted with your justice. Maybe even today, right? Maybe you need to walk out of the room and make a phone call. <laughs> or shoot a text message to set up a coffee right now. Let's sit, let's pray, let's see what Christ tells us. And then we'll end our time by taking communion together. Beloved, do the work with Christ you need to do.